This is the podcast of Theophilus Church. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com. So if this evening, if you happen, I don't see her in this room right now, but if you happen to come across Brenna Wilson, go out of your way to give her a big hug and express your gratitude to her. She has worked extra hard uh, to help us get back on track with our meals and so that we can dine together uh, again Sunday evening. There she is right there. That's Brenna. So... (laughs) So tonight, uh, tonight we're going to enjoy some pizza and salad together downstairs. Next week is Potluck Sunday. Please plan on bringing something to share next week for that. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, oftentimes doing volunteer stuff at church is like a game of whack-a-mole. I mean, it's like you get one thing under control and then something else pops up. And it's a game that I've loved playing over the last seven years, um, and uh, this, this new season, it's, you know, there's more than one mole that, that is poking up at a time. But currently, our biggest need right now is uh, we need people to come and help set up and tear down uh, at church to get our tables all ready and, and to go. So if that is something that you are able to contribute toward and you're not already contributing in one or a million other ways here at this church, which most, most of you are, um, there is a sign-up sheet in the back. Give us your name and contact information so I can reach out to you and get you plugged in with one of our Sunday leads who helps kind of oversee that area. So please look at that on your way out if that is something that you are available to do, okay? Um, that's the only real announcement that I have for this evening. We're going to get into the reading of the Apostles' Creed together in the scripture, so please stand as Karen leads us in that. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Today we read from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. 
For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from hid him from their sight. They were looking up intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. This is the word of the Lord. our movement with the creed, tracing the creed, and we're getting to kind of like near the end of the portion that is covering Jesus. We've been tracing this movement of the Son of God, the the person of the Trinity, the Son of God, from eternal person of the Trinity down to human flesh, from the realm of the hill, the, the realm of heaven down to the hills of Galilee, from the crash of Bethlehem to the cross of Jerusalem, from the temple to the tomb. And really, if you're reading through the story for the first time, it's kind of like Once he's dead, you kind of expect him to stay dead, since that's what people tend to do once they die. But as we heard last week, that's not where the story ends for Jesus. And if you're familiar with the story of Jesus even a little bit, you know the resurrection is kind of a big deal. So he didn't stay dead. Without expectation or explanation, the course of Christ starts to reverse itself, and he goes from being just another dead person relegated to history to someone who is experiencing this resurrection mystery. And so we're going to continue that reversed course journey today as we talk about that phrase of the creed where we talk about him ascending back into heaven and being seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We witness the risen Christ, continue his risingness, and we make sense of what we say or what we mean when we say that Christ is risen. And we never say that in past tense in the church because he is risen indeed. But how does this happen? Like, what does Jesus do now that he's left earth? Where did he go? What's he doing now? What is he going to continue to do? What are we waiting for? Like, what does that mean? Why does that matter? Those are all some of the things that we're going to look at today. We just heard, uh, read the description, the detailed description of the ascension, which is where this part of the creed comes from. And it's interesting because the gospel writer Luke is the only one that actually records this event, and he records it twice. At the very end of his gospel, it's a couple of verses where he talks about the ascension, and then as we just heard read, he begins his next book, that second letter to Theophilus, to us, that second letter, he starts out talking about the ascension. Matthew and John don't mention the ascension at all. Mark, if you open your Bible, like Mark is going to have a mention of the ascension at the very end. But it's kind of like a postscript. And in the earliest versions that we have of the manuscripts for the Gospel of Mark, it's actually not in there at all. And the really like good faithful Bibles will have this like bracketed thing right before that section that says something like the earliest manuscripts do not have this section. 
So at some point, when they were kind of like passing along the gospel of Mark, someone said, I think it's a mistake that they left out like post-resurrection stuff and and the ascension. We should put that in there. And so they started writing that uh, at the end of Mark. But Luke really is where we get this kind of detailed account of what happens in the ascension. But even though it's not in the other gospels, like this idea that Christ left earth and ascended back to his rightful place with God the Father, it's central to the rest of the New Testament. It's just that instead of talking about the ascended Christ, we see the New Testament authors talking about the risen Christ. Or we see the New Testament authors talk about Christ being seated at the right hand of God. So it's very clear that like Christ went somewhere. He didn't just like disappear off the scene. He's back in his rightful place, which is in the throne room of God as part of the Trinity. And in a mysterious way that we'll talk about, he never fully left. So this ascension is a given throughout our, new t- our understanding of the New Testament. So what can we say about the ascension itself, like the actual event? Well, again, there's really just 11 verses in Acts and just a handful more in Luke that describe it. But if we think back about uh, to when we were talking about the virgin birth and the incarnation and how those two things are interrelated, that the mystery of the virgin birth and the incarnation is actually in the incarnation that God came down and took on flesh. The virgin birth is a sign that points to that mystery. You can't have one without the other. But the big deal is that God took on flesh. The virgin birth just shows us what a big deal it is. In the same way, the ascension is a sign that points to the mystery of Christ being elevated again into the throne room of heaven. So the ascension is a physical sign that points to a much deeper and bigger mystery. It's not about the place where Christ has physically gone to. Right? Even the disciples kind of scratch their heads at that. They're standing on this hilltop, Mount of Olives. Christ goes up, like a cloud comes in the way. I guess the cloud moves on, and they're like, where'd Jesus go? And then, like dummies, like they have to be told, like, he's not here anymore. Go along now. And like, I think we still like wonder, like, where, where did Christ go physically? Like, where does he exist now? Is he, like, floating out in space somewhere? Is this, like, Hubble Space Telescope is going to, like, turn one day? And we'll be like, there he is. There's Jesus. Like, he just kept, like, rising, right? This is not about where Christ is physically, but about the position of Christ. Most, uh, the second thing that we can learn about the ascension is that uh, his ascension was the most visible of all of his post-resurrection appearances. All of the Gospels talk about Jesus interacting physically with people after his resurrection. They make a big deal out of Jesus doing kind of normal things like walking and eating and drinking and like making fires. Jesus was a little bit of a pyro, at least on the beach that one day. A big deal about like he didn't just like appear to be resurrected. He was physically here. He interacted in time and space with the disciples. But it was usually only with a couple people at a time. And he had this habit of like appearing in locked rooms. He was very like specific about who he wanted to appear to. But the, the ascension is both the last of his resurrection appearances and it's the most visible. The most people see him at once when they're gathered on the Mount of Olives. And then this is right outside the city of Jerusalem. So when he goes up, we can maybe assume that a lot of people may have seen that. I don't know if people would have believed you when you said you just saw a dude floating off into the sky somewhere. But like, it was a visible 
resurrection, post-resurrection appearance. And the final thing that I think that we can understand from the ascension is that, and this is kind of embedded in the way that those two men clothed in white talk to the disciples. It's like Jesus left a mission for his disciples about. He left a mission for his disciples to be about. And they needed to get on with it. We connect this to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, where, we, where Jesus gives the Great Commission, right? Therefore, as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. That's what he's left them with. And then as he ascends into heaven, he expects them to go do that. And they need a little kick in the butt to come down off the mountain and go back into Jerusalem, which they do. So the disciples need to be about his business. In a very real way, the church was started as those disciples came down off of the Mount of Olives and went back into Jerusalem to go about the business of Jesus. So that's like what we mean by the physical ascension of Jesus. What about this whole idea of right-handedness? What does it mean that he's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? Again, I don't think we're to understand this like only in a very literal sense that somewhere there is a throne room that we can like point to and we'll see like God sitting on this throne and Jesus sitting next to him. I think we'll be able to understand it that way one day, but this shouldn't be sort of like the search that we're after. We're after to under, what we're after is to understand sort of the place in a figurative sense that Jesus plays in relationship to God the Father. It's about function, not spatial location. The right hand, for a long time, the right hand of a ruler has been a special place of influence and a special place of authority and honor. There's a lot of different reasons that people postulate as to why that was from like protecting the king's side to uh, being on the side that uh, the king issues proclamations from. But I think we're supposed to understand, first of all, that Jesus has this special status and favor before God the Father. It's kind of like echoes back to a story at the end of Genesis. Remember the story of Joseph? He was one of Jacob's children, and he gets sold into slavery, right? He gets taken to Egypt, put in the house of Potiphar, ends up in jail, gets out of jail because he can interpret dreams, interprets dreams for Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh says, this guy is really wise and what he says is true. And he makes him his right hand. And when he does that, he invests him with all of the authority of Pharaoh. Says, I give you all the authority I have. Nobody in Egypt shall have more authority than you except for me. And so when Pharaoh speaks, or when Joseph speaks, People understand that Pharaoh is speaking through Joseph. So we've already seen that there is kind of a a correlation here. He also has the Father's ear, being at the right hand of the Father. He has the Father's ear. He's close by, and we can understand that like what Jesus says to God the Father, God the Father is not going to mistake, right? God the Father is going to hear that. I watch a lot of TV. I should do more things like reading, but I still watch a lot of TV. And I've been watching through for a second time the show Veep. Have anybody seen that show? A couple of people. It is a show. It's hilarious. It's about, it, it kind of like is a political common, a comedy that kind of follows like a vice president. And one of the things that this vice president has is like a right-hand person. And this guy's name is Gary. 
And like Gary carries this bag and everything the vice president could possibly need is in that bag. So like always right next to the vice president is Gary. And when the vice president is meeting with people, Gary is like right there off her shoulder and is like whispering into her ear like the salient facts about that person. And so it makes it look kind of like the vice president knows who everybody is and what their, her connection is to everyone. But really, it's Gary's job to kind of know that and be in the ear of the vice president. And in a very similar way, though God doesn't need it for knowledge because of his omniscience, like Jesus is right in the ear of God. And I think as we approach God, as we try to approach God, that can be a comfort to us that we'll come back to. Interestingly, as the Son of God, the person of the Trinity, Jesus has never ceased to be in this place. When the Son of God took on flesh in the form of Jesus Christ, it's not like the Trinity became a duo and then you had Jesus walking around. In a mystical way that's hard for us to understand, the Trinity stayed united and Jesus took on flesh and walked among us. But what is new is that humanity through Jesus Christ, is now back in relationship with the Trinity in the way that it meant to be. In John 14, Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to prepare a place for us. Throughout the next three chapters of John, John 14, 15, and 16, he continually tells his disciples, I'm going ahead of you to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you. You're not going to see me anymore, but I'll come back and take you to the place that I've prepared for you. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 calls Jesus the calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. And he talks about the way that Jesus is taking humanity in to commune with God. It's interesting to me that Jesus takes on human flesh, son of God, like unembodied in some way, takes on human flesh in the incarnation, and Jesus never takes that flesh off again. It's not like the body falls apart. And just the Spirit joins God in the throne room any longer. But we see this actual physical ascension. And humanity is being united with God in sort of a first fruits kind of way. As Jesus is in the presence of God, so shall we all be one day. This is a preview of the end of a story. It's a glimpse of what things are going to be like. See, sin made it impossible for us to be in the presence of God. But Christ as in human flesh, living a sinless life, makes it possible again for us to dwell with God as humans. One day we will dwell with God again. So we've got Jesus ascended into heaven. We've got Jesus mystically at the right hand of God the Father. So what is he doing? Like, is he just kind of like waiting? He said, like, nobody's going to know when it's my appointed time to come back. Another place he says that he doesn't even know that. This is like a big waiting game. Jesus is twiddling his thumbs. He's playing solitaire, something like that. Well, he's actually up there and he's interceding for us on our behalf. And again, I think that like there's another metaphor that we can use here. I watch a lot of TV. And uh, my... This is not going to be a perfect metaphor, but it's a really good one, I think. Um, so my, my friend Mark loves the show The Sopranos. I'd never seen The Sopranos before. He says it's like a weird, like, he's like, I watch The Sopranos, and I'm like, huh, 
It's kind of like my family. So you'll have to talk with him more about that. But um, he loves The Sopranos, so I love Mark, so I'm watching through The Sopranos. And even if you know nothing about The Sopranos, like the, one of the main characters, the main character is this guy named Tony. He's a mob boss, right? And Tony has a right-hand man. This right-hand man's name is Silvio. Silvio's fantastic. Silvio's responsibilities are like the day-to-day operations of what's going on in that family and knowing and doing what Tony's will is without having to be told all the time. When Silvio speaks, it's the same as if Tony is speaking. When Tony is unavailable, Silvio is the guy that is acting on his behalf. Silvio stays in that place until Tony comes back and says, okay, I can resume my my duties. And Silvio also acts as an intermediary. And this is one of the more interesting parts of the show, is that when Tony has something that he's dealing with, that he's not going to deal with directly, he gives it to Silvio, and Silvio goes and acts with all that authority, and he interacts with the actual people. And when people have like an issue that they want brought before Tony, like they're like, I don't know if I can approach him about this, they go to Sil. And Silvio takes it to Tony and knows just how to talk to Tony to get the best outcome. So in a way, Silvio represents Tony to all of his men. And Silvio also, flip that around, Silvio represents those men back to Tony. In a similar way, God acts as an intermediary between, or Jesus acts as an intermediary between us and God the Father. Through Jesus, we're able to clearly see what God wants us to be about in the world. And we can come to Jesus and present our requests to Jesus and know that Jesus is going to present those to God the Father in just the right way. Now, the New Testament writers, see, they didn't have the Sopranos, so we don't read about that image in the Bible. They had a different image, though. They have the image of Jesus as high priest. Now, this is like a little bit more difficult for us to understand because we're kind of removed from like Second Temple culture. And we don't really have the office of priest in the Protestant realm anymore. Like when you come into the sanctuary, you bring coffee, you talk to people, we start singing, you keep talking, and eventually start singing. Like we don't have the same like kind of ethos and space as they would have had in Second Temple culture. So it's hard for us to imagine because we're not that familiar. So we hear high priest and that is almost meaningless to us. But the author of Hebrews in the New Testament uses this image of Jesus as kind of a high priest as the primary metaphor for like most of the book. If you look at Hebrews, pretty much chapters 4 through 10 of that book are all about Jesus being a, a new kind of high priest. So I want to try to reconstruct that for us a little bit since maybe because it's in the Bible, it's a better metaphor than Silvio from The Sopranos. We'll see. The idea, the whole role of temple priests, uh, this comes to us from the days when uh, the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and the priestly duties were given to his brother Aaron. They were both from the tribe of Levi, and their tribe was kind of then called out to carry on these priestly duties. So you have the law that's given, and the people are supposed to obey it, but when they don't, there's consequences. And who's going to like oversee those consequences and meeting those out? That's going to be the priests. That's the job of the priest, to uphold the part of the law that reconciles people back to God, that reconciles Israel back to God. 
And the way that you become a priest, well, the first criteria is you have to be born a Levite. So you kind of inherit that job and that role. And then people come to you at the temple, and if you read the book of Leviticus, you'll see like it's like a laundry list of like, if you did this, you're going to need to bring this for a blood sacrifice. If you want to honor God in this way, you're going to need to bring this kind of blood or grain sacrifice. It doesn't matter if it's individual sin, if it's familial sin. There's a day we'll talk about where it's just like all sin. Or if you're like having a good harvest and you just want to thank God. We offered prayers to the people earlier tonight where they were all thanksgiving kinds of thanksgivings and gratitudes were given in terms of like material wealth back in the time of the temple. When we look at Leviticus 16, we see described the duties of the high priest. The high priest was one that was kind of set apart and special above all of the rest of the priests. And their duties really came into play on that day was the day of atonement. That's when the high priest's role was really highlighted. This was an annual day where the whole of Israel was reconciled back to God. All of the sins of the country reconciled back to God. Israel as a whole people were made at one with God on the Day of Atonement. On this day, the high priest is the only one that's allowed to enter into the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. So the temple was a building. It had a bunch of different courts. And depending sort of on uh, your nationality and what tribe you come from and what your gender is, that depends on which court you can go into. Once you get inside the building itself, it's a big sanctuary. And once you get inside the sanctuary, there's a part that's screened off with a veil. And that veil or big curtain has on the other side of it the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant has within it the tablets that have the Law of Moses on them. This is like the presence of God in symbolic form. And it said that the presence of God would come into the Holy of Holies and would come to rest upon the Ark of the Covenant. And that humans, sinful humans, can't be in the presence of God and still live. And so you had to make your designated human, sinless for a moment. And this was the, the, what was put on the high priest as he was coming in to offer a sacrifice on behalf of all of the people of Israel. So he's allowed to enter there on that one day, and he has to bring two sets of offerings with him. So the first set of offerings he has to bring are offerings for himself. Like, high priest is still a sinful guy, so he's got to go in with a couple of offerings for himself, There's all this sort of like ritual cleansing that has to happen. It talks about these linen garments he has to wear, but he can only wear them like when he's been bathed. So there's like a a wash basin in there. He's got to clean himself off, put on these special clothes. Then he can take the animals. He can sacrifice the animals he needs to sacrifice to make himself clean. And in that moment, before the eyes of God, he's sinless. So now he has to be really careful because he's got a very narrow window of time before he screws up and sins again and will die in the presence of God. So now that he is sinless for a moment, he can take the other offerings in and offer those inside the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people of Israel. So he's bathed, he's changed, he's atoned for, and he's got three animals that he's got to wrangle with him for the people of Israel. He's got two goats, and he's got a bull. And you can imagine what this looks like, right? He's got two goats and a bull. He's dressed all in white linen. He's going to pull back the veil where the Holy of Holies is. And 
Sometimes this is like your experience when you come to Theophilus on a Sunday evening. He's going to be hit with a cloud of incense. Because it said that they needed to pump so much incense and burn so much incense in there that you couldn't actually even see the Ark of the Covenant. Because maybe just seeing it was going to be too much for you. So he takes one of these goats. In Leviticus 16, he lays his hands on its head. And he transfers all of the sin of Israel onto this goat. That goat is then not killed. That goat is then sent off into the wilderness. This is a scapegoat, and where we get the idea of scapegoat from. It bears the sin of Israel out of the community and into the wilderness. And then he slaughters the other goat, and he slaughters the bull, and he takes the blood and he sprinkles it on these two cherubim that are on the cover of the ark. And then he's allowed to come out. Once he does that, he makes Israel at one with God again. And just for a moment, everything is reconciled to what it should be. Now, we could sort of walk through the parallels between how, like, I could tell you, like, this is why I think that Jesus is like a high priest, right? He is both the sacrificer and he is the sacrifice. He's the scapegoat who bears the sin and lives takes that into the wilderness, descends down into hell. And he's also the sacrificial goat and bull. Hebrews does this again. Hebrews kind of makes some of these parallel connections. But then Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews pivots. And he says, eh, this isn't quite working. Because it's not like Jesus is another Aaron. Jesus isn't a priest, a high priest in the order of Aaron and the Levites. He's more like a high priest of the order of Melchizedek. Now, at this point, you may say, Melchizedek I said Melchizedek also, and I had to go look it up. Melchizedek is mentioned only in a couple verses in Genesis chapter 14. So if we go and look at what Genesis 14 says about Melchizedek, and then the author of Hebrews, he's going to talk about Melchizedek as well. In Genesis 14, Abraham, Abram, you remember him, kind of the father of uh, uh, Isaac and Jacob. Abram is on this like rescue mission. His nephew Lot has gotten kidnapped with his whole family, and Abram's going to go get him back in the land of Canaan. And so Abram, here's where he is, and he goes to rescue him. Along the way, he steps into the middle of a war. There's a bunch of kings of Canaan that are fighting one another. And he goes in, he kills the ones that are holding Lot, he rescues Lot and his family, and they're about to leave. Well, the other kings that had been fighting this same guy that was holding Lot, they come out to Abram, and they're like, thanks, man. That was super cool of you. We won. He's like, you're welcome, I guess. And they're like, here, take our stuff. You can have some of our stuff. He's like, I don't hate that. So he's about to leave again. And like out of nowhere, like some like Gandalf coming over the ridge kind of thing, like this guy comes walking down the hill named Melchizedek. And it says in the text, he's king of Salem, which is uh, an abbreviation or a, a shortening of Jerusalem. He's king of Salem and he comes bearing bread and wine he walks up to Abram, and he gives him a blessing and has a meal with him. 
And then, like, that's the end of the story. Like, Genesis just moves on as if we're all supposed to say that made sense. Melchizedek is not listed in, among the names of the kings that were at war with one another. And so, like, what are we supposed to do with this? Abram understood something, like, big had gone on. He received this blessing from the king of Salem, and he gave him a tenth of everything he had. In fact, this is where we get our concept of the tithe from, is that Abram said, wow, that's a significant blessing. You deserve a tenth of everything that I have. So what does the writer of Hebrews mean when it says that Jesus is a king after the order of Melchizedek? Or is a priest after the order of Melchizedek? Well, in Hebrews 7 through about Hebrews 10, the author of Hebrews unpacks this for us. Retells this story of Melchizedek with some interpretation that wasn't in the Genesis reading of it. He makes a couple connections. He says, well, first of all, if you look at uh, the priest's in the order of Levite and and Aaron. Like, they all get their job because they're born into it. Melchizedek comes on the scene, and he already has the authority. He has the authority because he's a king. He's a king, and he's designated himself as a priest, and he's going to fulfill both roles. He wasn't born into it. He already had the authority. He says Jesus is the same way. Jesus isn't a Levite, but that's okay because he has the kingship of God, and so he can act as the high priest. The author of Hebrews then says, and you know, when a priest dies, one of his descendants steps up to fill his role. But Jesus isn't dead. And Jesus needs no descendants to step up and fill his role. He'll never die. So he's the last priest that we need. He says, when a priest sins, the priest has to offer sacrifices in order to be made clean. But Jesus never sinned, so Jesus doesn't need to offer sacrifices to be made clean. Since he was sinless, and he's operating as a priest, he perfectly fulfills that first covenant, that law that was in the Ark of the Covenant. That covenant no longer needs a priest. So what is he a priest of? This is where the author of Hebrews and Paul talks about him being the priest of a new covenant. That new covenant symbolized by this heavenly temple where the ark is replaced with the actual throne of God, the real presence of God, where the blood is Christ's and not an animal's. There's a sacrifice that was only needed the one time, not every day, like the priests of the covenant offering sacrifices all the time. So what? Like, so Jesus is a high priest. Jesus is a high priest and a king. And he perfectly fulfilled all those duties of being a high priest. So so the covenant that we've been tracking through the Old Testament is completed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All of the laws that pertain to it were made at one through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ as the priest sacrifices himself. We can approach God through Christ. And we share in all of the privileges that the risen Christ shares. Christ stands between us and God and mediates on our behalf, telling us the things that we need to understand from God and taking to God all of the things that we would ask to be presented before the creator of the universe. So our prayers then, they're not like, they're not God shots. They're not arrows that we're shooting up to heaven. 
Just like the incense rises, like we sang earlier this evening. The incense rises and permeates and fills the temple. So our prayers rise up to God and permeate and fill the throne room of God. And at God's right hand, we see Jesus constantly in God's ear, speaking to God on our behalf. And because Jesus has acted as priest and sacrifice, he's removed that veil. We can see clearly now what's going on on the other side. We have bold and direct access into that inner sanctum. And as we walk down that aisle of the sanctuary of the heavenly temple, we're seen as clothed in the forgiveness of Christ. We're not seen for our sins and for what is lacking in our lives and in our bodies. But we have taken on the forgiveness as that linen garment that the high priest has to wear. That high priest had to bathe and change clothes and offer personal sacrifices to approach the throne of God, the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of the throne of God. And we don't have to do that. Jesus died and did all of this for us so that now we can share in what he has already done. That means we have no need to fear the presence of God. We don't need to fear God, at least not in that scary way. Maybe in that really like old school way of fear the Lord, right? But that's not be afraid of God. Because God looks at us and sees the imparted righteousness of Jesus Christ. But we also need to remember that Jesus, in addition to being a priest, also bears the kingship responsibility of God and the authority of God. And Jesus has given us stuff to do. And when Jesus gives us stuff to do, it's as if God himself, because indeed God himself, is speaking to us. The disciples understood this. And so after Jesus ascended, once they kind of came to their senses, they got busy and the church was formed. They returned to Jerusalem and did what Jesus told them to do. And we must be busy about Jesus' work as well. Making disciples, being disciples, baptizing disciples. That's the work that our hand has been put to. As we come to a time of communion this evening, and if uh, you're leading us to communion, you can make your way down here. Notice that we set the communion out on an altar. This altar is to remind us of the sacrifices that used to be paid. And when we approach this altar each week, we notice that there is no priest that is needed. There's no curtain to separate us. On this altar is a sacrifice that has already been made. The body is already broken. The blood has already been shed. And we don't have to bring a thing. It's here for us to participate in. And when we participate in it, we recall that we are forgiven and that we're made at one with God through Christ's sacrifice, through the body and blood. And when we leave the altar, we should go with the priest king's words ringing in our ears. He has business for us to do until we come and meet with him again. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the way in which your ascension 
into heaven has enabled us to come with boldness before you, to enter into the sanctuary of God and be already imputed with your righteousness, with your forgiveness and goodness, that we need not fear your presence. But as we approach the altar, we approach as still sinful humans in need of your grace, your radical, scandalous, free grace. So God, we pray that the sacrifice that Christ has already made for us would continue to be the wonderful, beautiful reconciliation of us to you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com. Thank you.